Chapter Nine of the Red Window. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dustin Tuttle. The Red Window by Fergus Hume. Chapter Nine, at Cove Castle. Five miles from Hurston, the marshes began and did not end until they touched the coast. There were acres of mud and reeds and succulent grasses, interspersed with narrow waterways. In rainy weather this low-lying land, if it could be called so, almost disappeared under water, and in summer the poisonous morass exhaled white mist which caused fever and ague. The people who dwelt on the border of the slough of Despin were rarely healthy but they were attached to the dismal neighborhood and refused to move to higher ground where they would have enjoyed better health. What was good enough for their fathers was good enough for them, was the argument upon which they based the refusal. The road from Hurston changed where the marshes began to a causeway and ran solid and high across the treacherous bog towards the coast. Here it took a sudden turn and passed through several fishing villages on its way to Market-on-Sea and thence, between hedges, it passed onward to London, a road once more. Some distance from the curve, an arm of the causeway ran for a quarter of a mile to Cove Castle, which was built on a firm and elevated spot of ground, near a kind of estuary which communicated with the sea. The sea itself was only distant half a mile, and a fine view of it could be obtained from the castle. Why the building should be called by so high-sounding a name, it is hard to say. It was simply a large stone house of two-story, with a kind of tower at one end. Formerly, in the reign of Elizabeth, it had been a fort, and afterwards, falling into decay, had been used by smugglers for the storing of contraband goods. In the reign of George the Third, the then Lord Coniston, being disgusted with life, and anxious to isolate himself from the gay world in which he had glittered to the detriment of his purse and health, had bought the property, and there had lived and died. At that time the family possessed several seats in a townhouse, but the Georgian Coniston preferred this unhealthy neighborhood as least likely to attract his former friends. So no one visited him, and he lived and died a recluse. Afterwards the castle was deserted again, the successors of this lordly hermit preferring to live in more healthy parts. But gradually the property had been sold bit by bit until, when Dick, the present lord, inherited nothing remained to him but Cove Castle and the few acres around. Also, he possessed the family vault, which was underneath the Church of St. Agnes at the village of Benstow, three miles away. It was strange that the members of the family should have decided to be buried in this lonely place, when they could have rested in some green churchyard in the Midlands, but seeing that Cove Castle alone remained to their descendants, it was just as well that the former holders of the title had entertained this odd idea. The present Lord Coniston at least retained, out of the wreck of the property, the vault wherein the remains of his forebears were laid. When Coniston arrived at the castle he was met at the door by a gigantic female of uncommon ugliness, who answered to the name of Selina Moon. She was large enough to have earned an income by exhibiting herself in a caravan, being considerably over six feet, and sufficiently ugly to shame even the witches in Macbeth. Had Mrs. Moon lived in the Middle Ages, she would assuredly have been put to death for sorcery, 
as her looks seemed hardly human. She had the frame of a grenadier and the voice of a drill sergeant. Her face was large and round and pallid from a long life in the midst of the marshes. A few gray hairs on her upper lip gave her a still more masculine look, and indeed the least observant would have taken her for a man in disguise. She wore a frilled cap which surrounded her face like the rays of a sunflower, and wore a vivid red gown bound at the waist by a yellow scarf. Mrs. Moon loved bright colors, and apparently, if one could judge from her black eyes and beaked nose, had something of the gypsy in her. Not so far as wandering was concerned, though, for she rarely left the castle. This was because her great size, coupled with her love of finery, provoked comment from adults and insults from children whenever she ventured abroad. This Amazonian female, from her height of six feet five, looked down on Coniston with a submissive air. She was as timid as a rabbit, the most harmless of her sex, and report went that the late Mr. Moon, who had been almost a dwarf, had frequently beaten her in spite of her superior inches. However, the old man was dead, and for many a long day Mrs. Moon had lorded it over the one servant in the castle. But she still wore her submissive air, and when her master imperiously demanded a sight of the gentleman who was expecting him, led the way at once to an upper room. "'But I wouldn't take everyone,' said Mrs. Moon in a thin, high voice like the midnight wind in a chimney. "'He being wishful to keep himself quiet. What have he done, my lord?' "'Nothing,' said Constan promptly. "'He only came down here for a rest. Do you think he has robbed the bank?' "'There's worse things in robbing banks,' remarked Mrs. Moon, shaking her frilled cap portentously. "'And the worst things is what he's done. And why shouldn't he tell me his name if he was a babe for innocence?' "'Didn't he do so when he arrived?' asked Coniston, halting on the landing with an anxious look. "'No, my lord, bless your heart, he didn't,' said the giantess. "'And but that he had your letter, which was as plain as print.' "'And was print.' interpolated dick remembering his calligraphy adapted to the brains of mrs moon i shouldn't have let him in but your lordship said he was to have the best room and the best room he has to say nothing of your lordship's clothes he having arrived in tatters like a tramp which he isn't from the princely looks of him no one knows as he is here he having asked me to say nothing but victoria what about her asked coniston rather sharply for Victoria was a small servant, preternaturally sharp and mighty curious. She's always asking questions as to what he's doing here. Then don't answer her questions. I don't, said Mrs. Moon plaintively. And but that she's so strong I'd smack her hard. But only Jerry could manage her, and bless me, your dear lordship, he's earning his bread in London, though I haven't heard of him in months. He's not in the place I obtained for him, said Coniston, stopping at the door of the room indicated by the housekeeper. He's robbed the till and bolted. Mrs. Moon was not all disturbed. Just like his poor father, my second son, said she, shaking the frilled cap again. He was a wonderful boy for money and never minded how he got it. Have they jailed Jerry? she asked with great simplicity. Coniston could hardly help smiling at the calm way in which she took the report of her grandson's wickedness. No, his master turned him out and gave him another chance. Bless and preserve your dear lordship, Jerry won't take no chance, as I always said, being advised by the cards. 
it's the gallers the boy will come to, and may I not be here to see him dangling at the end of a rope, much as he may deserve it. Jerry's a bad un for sure, and takes after my old man's side of the family, several having been choked by the law for thieving and murdering and otherwise taking their employment. Where is he now? I don't know, Mrs. Moon, but if he comes here, don't you let him into the castle, and don't you let him know that Mr. Mr. Grant, Dick gave Bernard a new name for the sake of concealment, is here. Grant, echoed Mrs. Moon, but he don't look scotch. Never you mind what he is. You hold your tongue and may Victoria hold hers. Only Jerry can manage her, said Mrs. Moon firmly, me not being strong enough for such a tearing cat. If your lordship would speak yourself, I'll see to it, interrupted Coniston quickly. I'm stopping here for the night, Mrs. Moon. Can you give me and Mr. Er, Grant a good dinner? I'll cook it myself, Victoria being fond of burning things, and her pastry being lead for heaviness. The wine your lordship knows. Is there any of that port left? Plenty, save what Jerry drank, he being fond of his glass. What, a boy of thirteen, Mrs. Moon? said Coniston seriously. If you had stifled Jerry in the mud years ago, it would have been better for him and for you. Mrs. Moon blew a gigantic sigh. True enough, your lordship, seeing as he'll occupy a place in the Chamber of Horrors in the exhibition me and Moon saw in London. Ah, well, some of his grandfather's people were hanged, and... Coniston waited to hear no more of this domestic Newgate's calendar, but abruptly opened the door and entered the room. It was a large, airy apartment, with two windows looking on to the shining expanse of the sea, and well furnished in an old-fashioned way. In a large grate a fire of logs was briskly burning, so that the atmosphere was less damp than in the other rooms of the castle. The furniture was all of black oak, and included a square table, a comfortable sofa which was drawn up close to the fire, and several armchairs. Also, there was a sideboard and a bookcase well supplied with volumes of works long since out of print. The hangings were of a faded brocade, and the carpet was patched and mended. Here and there was valuable china and a few silver ornaments. The whole room looked comfortable and homelike, and rather quaint in its faded and mellow beauty. "'Where are you, Bernard?' asked Coniston, seeing the room was empty. For answer, a window curtain was drawn aside and Gore came out, holding the heavy steel poker. It's only you, he said, looking very pale. I heard voices and concealed myself behind the curtain. I expected you, but didn't know but what someone else might come. That servant suspects me. Not Mrs. Moon, said Coniston, pitting the haggard looks of his friend. No, Victoria. She is as sharp as a needle and... Don't distress yourself, old boy, said Dick taking Gore's hand and leading him to the sofa, upon which he had been apparently lying until startled by the sound of voices. Mrs. Moon can be depended upon, and I'll speak to Victoria myself. You are safe here. Are you sure, Dick? Perfectly sure. And even if you were discovered, I could manage to conceal you in the vaults below the castle. Are there vaults? asked the fugitive, who was shivering and pale. Yes. The old smugglers used them to store goods and as hiding places. There is a passage and door communicating with the arm of the sea which runs near the castle, and you could easily escape to foreign parts by means of a boat. Cheer up, old boy, added Dick, clapping his friend on the back. You're not dead yet. 
The poor hunted young fellow threw his arm schoolboy fashion over Coniston's shoulder. What a good fellow you are, Dick, he said. I fancied you might believe me guilty. I'd as soon believe myself guilty, you several kinds of ass. And Alice? asked Bernard under his breath. She believes you innocent. So does Aunt Berengaria and Durham. Yes, and Miss Randolph also. She's a ripping girl, that. I wish she wasn't engaged to Beryl, the pig. What does he say? asked Gore, warming his hand and casting a look over his shoulder. He says nothing, because he thinks you are drowned dead, as Mr. Peggotty would say. And by Jove, Bernard, I thought you really were dead. You have no idea what a relief it was when I got your letter. How did you escape? Bernard passed his hand through his hair and sighed wearily. The strain through which he had passed, and from which he still suffered, showed itself in his bloodless cheeks and his wild eyes. At every sound he started and shook. His nerves, and small wonder, were quite unstrung. And even while sitting safely beside his old school chum on the sofa near the fire, he kept a tight hold of him, like a child by its mother's knee. Seeing this, Coniston rose quickly. Bernard was on his feet in a moment, startled by the suddenness of the movement. "'What's the matter?' he demanded, looking anxiously around, and eyeing both door and window suspiciously. "'You are the matter,' said Coniston, touching the bell. "'I must get you some wine. You look so awfully ill, old chap. This will never do. I tell you, Bernard, you are all right. I'll stick to you through thick and thin. But if I was arrested—' You won't be arrested. Everyone thinks you are dead. You'll stay here until we sift this matter to the bottom. And then you can take your place again in the world as Sir Bernard Gore. Sir Bernard? Of course. You inherit the title and the money also. Not the money, Dick. Yes. Durham told me to tell you, as he couldn't come himself. He is now reading the will, and Beryl will find himself left out in the cold. You get everything. Bernard threw up his hands. And I'm a hunted fugitive. Steady, old boy. Bite on the bullet. You're a dead man, and will remain one until we discover who killed your grandfather. And how can we... Shut up, Bernard. Coniston made an imperative sign as a knock came to the door. Gore at once turned his face to the fire and began to arrange the logs, while Lord Coniston spoke to a sharp, dark, wizened child who entered the room. She was no more than fifteen, but had such an old face and such a womanly appearance that she looked much older. Her eyes were as black as sloes, and her thin lips tightly closed. A most unpleasant-looking creature with a waspish nature. "'Oh, Victoria,' said Coniston, as this goblin dropped a curtsy, "'I want you to bring up some port wine. Mrs. Moon will give it to you, and some glasses also.' "'Yes, my lord. Bring a plate of biscuits, too.' Yes, my lord. And Victoria, said the young man as she retreated, there is no need for you to mention that I have visitors at the castle. No, my lord, said Victoria, and with a glance full of suspicion at Bernard's back, she withdrew as noiselessly as she entered, and with a final curtsy, such as might have been made by a wooden doll. Indeed, Victoria, a most inappropriate name, might well have been cut out of wood, so stiff and angular and hard did she look. Coniston did not wonder that placid Mrs. Moon could not control this embryo Virago. A combat between them would be like that between an elephant and a mosquito, with the betting on the insect. That's a mistake, Dick, 
said Bernard when the door closed. What is? asked Coniston, staring, telling that girl to hold her tongue. She has no reason to suspect me, and quite as likely as not thought me merely your guest. Now she will fancy all sorts of things. I hope not, said Coniston uneasily, but she's such a little devil that I thought it best to give her one for herself, and if she chatters she will lose her situation. I am so afraid lest she should be in communication with Jerry. Jerry? Judas, the grandson of Mrs. Moon, who robbed Taberley. He and Victoria were as thick as thieves, and are about equal in wickedness. If the girl suspected anything, she might ask Judas to help her learn more of the truth than we want known. Both would sell their nearest and dearest for a pound. But don't bother, Bernard, said the easy-going Dick, again crossing to the sofa. Everything is right. I hope so. I hope so, muttered Gore. If I am arrested, I cannot make any defense. We'll talk of that later. Here comes Mrs. Moon with the wine, and so speedily that I suspect she must have out a bottle for her private drinking. I say, Mrs. Moon, said Coniston, as the giantess entered with a silver tray and the wine. Don't let Victoria leave the castle on any account. I should think not, said Mrs. Moon, setting down the tray. She works little enough as it is without traipsing about on holidays. I'd keep her under lock and key on bread and water if I had my way. And if she wasn't too strong for me, the besom that she is, begging your dear lordship's pardon. Anything else, my lord? No, you can go. And glad I am to go, said Mrs. Moon, withdrawing with a ponderous step, being engaged in playing kings. "'Kings,' said Coniston when she vanished. Bernard, in spite of his sadness, laughed and explained. "'It's a game of patience,' he said. "'I asked Mrs. Moon for a pack of cards to pass the time, and was playing the game myself. "'She was curious, so to keep her in a good temper I taught it to her. "'Ever since she has been playing it unsuccessfully.' "'Oh!' Coniston was not interested in his housekeeper's games— he opened the bottle of port and carefully poured out a full glass, which he passed to Bernard. Drink that up, you sinner. Gore sipped a little wine, but finally drank the whole glass. Coniston made him take another in spite of his protestations, and then the color came back to his sunken cheeks. The poor fellow was thin with anxiety and want of sleep. When Coniston saw he was better, he made him light a pipe, and then sat down to hear an account of his escape. Bernard was grateful for these attentions, and began to look less cowed. "'You're a good friend, Dick,' he said, smoking luxuriously. "'This is the first moment of peace I have known since that awful moment.' "'How did you escape?' asked Coniston, lighting a cigarette. "'I threw myself into the river and swam across.' "'In the fog?' "'Yes. I was guided by the piers of the Chelsea Bridge.' On the opposite side, I took off my coat and hat and left them lying on the bank, so that it might be thought I was drowned. Which is exactly what people do think, said Dick complacently. Thank heaven for that. Well, then I went into a public house I found open. It was not yet midnight, and made up a story about having been robbed and thrown into the river. That was dangerous. The public house people might have advised you to see the police. I don't think the landlord had any love for the police said Gore dryly. He looked like an old convict himself and displayed a fellow sympathy. I don't know if he believed my story. However, for a sovereign, he gave me a coat and hat and asked no questions. 
I walked across Waterloo Bridge in the fog and escaped observation. But for the fog, I expect my military breeches and leggings would have betrayed me and provoked questions. But I managed to escape. I didn't sleep at all. I walked the whole night, and by dawn I was out of London. I lost myself several times in the fog, and twice had a row with a tramp or two. Then I took a train at Wayside Station to Gravesend and crossed the river to Tilbury. Didn't anyone ask questions? Bernard shook his head. The new yeomanry uniform wasn't known in those parts. I expect the gators made people think I was a farmer. I took the train to Pitsy, and then came on here under cover of night. It was ten o'clock by the time I got here. What did you do in the meantime? I loafed about the taproom of a pub and made out I was a horse dealer buying horses for the war. No one suspected me, and I managed to sustain my part perfectly. Did Mrs. Moon admit you at once? No, she was in bed, but when she came to the door she seemed disinclined to admit me. I produced your letter, and after she read it, which took about a quarter of an hour, she let me in. The next morning I wrote to you. What made you think of this place, Bernard? I can think of nowhere to hide, said Gore, leaning back with a weary sigh. And after all, he added with a glance around, this is a very good cash. Coniston nodded. You are quite safe here. I will show you the way to the vaults, and should there be any chance of your being discovered, you can hide there. Does Victoria know about the vaults? I can't say. Probably that Judas Brett has told her. He was brought up here and knows every nook and cranny of the castle. And now, Bernard, we must have a good dinner, and then you can tell me whom you suspect of committing the crime. End of chapter 9 Recording by Dustin Tuttle